Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17, and uh, we've been in the book of Acts for about 17 weeks now, if you're new to us, working our way through the text. If you work in the, the financial world, or perhaps even if you don't, you may have heard the name Chip Skoran. Chip Skoran uh, was a New York City hedge fund, hedge fund manager who became incredibly rich by his early 30s through a series of shrewd investments. Here's a picture of uh, Chip and his dog on the lawn of his 10,000-square-foot mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, Chip was really a poster boy for the American dream on steroids, a true uh, one-percenter. Uh, he was a guy who made it to the upper echelon of, of the financial society. Um, for example, at 37, Chip joined the Monticello Motor Speedway, which was a, a, a raceway in New York City where the likes of uh, Jerry Seinfeld and other uh, famous rich people were members. Um, one of Chip's car, the, the Alfa Romeo uh, Spider, the 8C, it was one of only about 500 made. It was one of, the, one of the most expensive cars you could buy at that time. And I, I did some research on this. You can still find those available if you want to drive a long way, but they do cost $300,000, so it's an expensive vehicle. Uh, they stopped making them in 2010, but there's still a few available. Chip had one. Chip loved to travel his favorite places, Barcelona and Paris, loved to go to the finest establishments, jet-set it all over the world, until one day it all came crashing down on him. In November of 2010, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York uh, launched an investigation into the criminal behavior that stretched across the, the hedge fund world and really uh, throughout the financial world. And what the DA discovered was investors had been using money, uh, using information obtained illegally to uh, make all kinds of illicit trades. Scowen was one of those. He, he was accused of bribing a French doctor with wine, cash, and travel in exchange for a confidential information about a clinical drug trial. And so this was a scheme that was illegal. It cost this guy... Uh, cost his firm millions of dollars, the firm would end up shutting down, and Chip Skoran, who once lived the high life and had everything he could imagine, faced, was faced with up to 30 years in federal prison for obstruction of justice, uh, illegal trading, and a number of other uh, crimes. Now, he ended up taking a plea deal that resulted in five years of prison, which he served, and prison was really tough. It was everything that you would imagine prison to be. Um, but remarkably, as he would recall in this article I read a few weeks ago, life got worse for Chip when he got out of prison. It was then that he said he really hit rock bottom. Chip noticed that all his former friends avoided him. He would walk into a room expecting to be greeted by some of his friends he hadn't seen in years, and he would notice that they would turn their backs on him, or they would quickly leave the room, or maybe they would whisper around him but not talk to him. He was broken and sought forgiveness from the people that he offended, that he wronged, but forgiveness would not be granted. I would tell people, he said, with great regret, I had no idea how deeply in love I could fall with making money, but that was nothing compared to how deeply in love I was with myself. He would express his remorse, he would ask for forgiveness, but he would not be forgiven. His friends would not welcome him back. His friends were gone. 
He started to have dreams about going back to prison. Not nightmares, dreams. He wanted to go back to prison, he said. Because in prison, he said, you can talk about your sins and your failures and not be judged. In prison, he said, people forgive because everybody knows that they've failed. It wasn't until Chip found true forgiveness in Jesus that he experienced uh, any sort of peace or the sense of acceptance. Brought to saving faith while he was in prison, Chip's favorite verses were both from the Apostle Paul, Romans 7, 15, I don't really understand myself or the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I do are the things that I hate, but also Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, uh, you know, one of the things I try to do is read broadly. I read theology and history books, biography and stuff, but I also read uh, contemporary stuff. And I came across that article a few weeks ago. It really uh, stood out to me. What I thought at the time was, sadly, the church can sometimes be more like Greenwich, Connecticut than she realizes, where a person's sins haunt her her whole life, where a man, despite actually asking for forgiveness and expressing remorse, is not forgiven where forgiveness is believed to be available only for some, but not for everyone. If you want to be reconciled to God, the message goes, here are the things you need to do. And of course, you can never do enough. If you've been with us very long at Capshaw, especially over the last few months, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter. And what we've seen is that the apostles of Jesus, namely Peter and James and then Paul and Barnabas and and Silas, and as we're going to see today, Timothy, they've been traveling around from one city to another, telling people that forgiveness is available to all people. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be forgiven. But many, although many receive that message with joy and they actually turn in faith to Christ, there are many who are outraged. I mean, outraged by this message. For some, they refuse to accept this message because of racial and ethnic hatred. They believe that forgiveness is only available to people who come from their same tribe. For others, they see Jesus as a political threat, a threat to the Caesars, and so they reject him and his message. Uh, For others, they already have their gods, and so they worship plenty of gods, and they're not about to turn from their gods to worship Jesus. And still for others... Their own perceived righteousness will not allow them to turn in repentance to the Savior. So, so the message brought by the apostles, again, it has this dividing effect, and I showed you a chart a few weeks ago on that. And some people, they receive it, the Spirit is at work, and they, they're broken down in repentance, and they turn in faith to Jesus, and God makes them brand new and forgives them. And they're brought into, reconciled, and united into this one people of God, this one family of God. But there are others, again, many others, who, who react so angrily that they seek to imprison, destroy, persecute, and even kill the messengers of this message. But what we've seen over and over is that they continue. The apostles continue with this message. They don't stop proclaiming Christ. Now, why do they continue despite such persecution? Why such uh, dogged persistence? in this mission? And what is their approach? What what approach are they taking? We'll answer those questions from the text this morning. We're going to look at three things, Paul's motivation, his method, and then what I'm calling his genius. So his motivation, his method, and his genius. Uh, Acts chapter 17, let me begin by reading verses 1 through 3. 
Here reads the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. I want to pause there for a moment because I don't want us to miss out on, and we've seen it over and over through the book of Acts, this pattern that the Apostle Paul does not deviate from. As was his custom, we're told, which just means that this is what he always did. He goes into the synagogue on three successive Sabbaths, so three straight Saturdays, what we know as Saturday, and he explains from the whole of Scripture how all the events in the Hebrew Scripture, what we know as the Old Testament, find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. New Testament scholar, uh, highly respected scholar F.F. Bruce writes, in accordance with his regular practice, Paul expounded the Old Testament Scriptures, bringing forward as evidence of their fulfillment the historic facts accompanied in the ministry, death, and exaltation of Jesus. So just as a side note, I want you to see this is the apostolic and post-apostolic way. This is the method of all preaching, and that is proclaiming Jesus as the predicted Messiah in the Old Testament, the one who suffered, died, and rose again for his people. I had a guy say to me one time, a member of a church that I served, not this church, it was a different church, and uh, he was a philosophy professor at a local university and considered himself to be, you know, very erudite and, and sort of well-read, sort of beyond anyone else's uh, reading. And he said to me one time, he said, you know, I was away a couple of weeks ago and I heard the best sermon that I've ever heard at a different, you know, it was at a different church, which is not really the nicest thing to say to your pastor that you've been sitting under for eight years. Uh, but he said, I was away on vacation, and I, I heard this amazing sermon, the best sermon that I've ever heard. And he said, the preacher never mentioned the name Jesus. And I said, then that's not a Christian sermon. And he was stunned by that and slightly offended by that. Um, but the reality is any sermon that focuses on all the things we need to do or historical argumentation or philosophies or ideologies or whatever, but they do not proclaim what Jesus has done, even if it's a sermon that tells us what we're supposed to do from the Bible, but it doesn't tell us what Jesus has done from the Bible, it may be helpful, but it's not a Christian sermon. And it has no power really to ultimately transform anyone's life. And we tend to go as pastors, we go to John 5 and we go to Luke 24 uh, when we talk about the necessity of preaching Christ in every sermon. And, and understandably, those are good places to go because that's where Jesus himself says, the whole Bible finds its fulfillment in me, he says. But we need only to look at the examples in Scripture of those who are anointed by God to preach. They preach Christ and Him crucified. Now let's look at verses 4 through 9. And some of them, this is the, those who would receive the message uh, there in Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men uh, of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. 
And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So things keep going from bad to worse for the apostles, particularly Paul, who's the most outspoken. But Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy, things keep going from bad to worse. Um, Here they're nearing the end of this second missionary journey, and Paul is on the run again. Everywhere he goes... People get upset. He incites a riot. Again, they, they, they seek to apprehend him. And sometimes, as we saw it a few weeks ago, they stone him. They persecute him. So everywhere he goes, he, he, he makes people very angry as he's preaching Christ. But the Lord continues to deliver him, sometimes miraculously. Sometimes the Lord just allows them to escape sort of narrowly. But the Lord continues to uh, allow them to progress. And so here we see Paul moving to the to Thessalonica, as we just saw, there's a major riot in the marketplace. He's chased out of there by a mob, only to find when he makes it to Berea, the next city, that the mob has followed him there. Now, the Bereans, we're told in the section, I'm not going to read here, I'm not going to read every verse of this chapter, but the Bereans were the more noble because they searched the Scriptures themselves to see if what the apostles, of what people were saying, actually reconcile with Scripture. Um, so Paul goes to Berea. And even though some of the Bereans embraced Paul, they couldn't stop the Thessalonians from actually making it to Berea and charging into the city in search of Paul. So the guys that Paul's with, at this point, Silas and Timothy, they say to him, look, for the sake of your own life and safety, you need to go somewhere else. So why don't you go to Athens and wait for us there? And that's what he does. Skip down to verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, we might expect a guy who's been on the run for his life, a guy who's already been beaten nearly to death, we might expect him to kind of lay low for a little bit, to stay under the radar, to stay out of the spotlight, to not attract any attention. But that's not what happens. The text tells us that as soon as he gets to Athens, he is greatly distressed. The Greek literally means he is provoked to anger. His spirit is vexed within him by all the idol worship. Now, here's the situation at Athens. Uh, The city of Athens was the original sort of pluralistic society where there are all kinds of gods and all kinds of beliefs, and there were idols everywhere that people worshipped. People were the epitome of tolerant, loving nothing better than to exchange ideas and listen to new philosophies. They were very learned, and they were even religious to some degree, worshiping in part an unknown God. And Paul is so bothered when he sees the idol worship, he's so uh, concerned and so angry that it prompts him to speak immediately. So here's the first point I want to make from this passage as it relates to Paul's motivation. It's this. A passion for God's glory is the fuel for the Christian's mission. So this is what really is going to motivate us and compel us to tell anyone else about Jesus. Because 
if you've ever, and hopefully you have, and, and maybe it's been a while, and, uh, and, and I get it, but you know, practicing evangelism, telling other people about Jesus is not easy. And you never know how people are going to respond. And sometimes people are upset. Sometimes people are frustrated. Sometimes, by God's grace, people want to hear more. I'm sure you've encountered that, which is hugely encouraging. Um, why would we go and tell someone else about Jesus knowing that we could be, we might very well be rejected? Well, it has to be a passion for the glory of God that will actually mobilize us to tell others about Jesus. What is it that seems to dishonor God more than anything else throughout the Scriptures? It is idol worship, I think. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. How many times do we see God respond to idolatry by saying, I'm not going to yield my glory to another. I will not allow someone else, some other false god, some, some creation of man to subvert and undermine my glory. Closing verse of 1 John shows us that this is an emphasis in the New Testament as well. The, we might say the best friend of Jesus, the Apostle John, uh, kind of oddly says at the very end of his first letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, of course, we don't bow down before wooden statues, and there's probably no one in this room who's made something by their own hands and they worship that thing, um, but we still allow things, even good things, to become ultimate things in our lives, things that we, don't, that we believe we cannot live without, things that actually take the highest priority, things to which we assign the greatest worth, which means we're just worshiping them. We ourselves have all kinds of idols in our hearts, which dishonors God and again subverts His glory. And so we see that the thing that seems to anger God the most throughout the Scripture is the worship of idols. Now, by contrast, what is it that seems to glorify God the most in the Scriptures? Isn't it the salvation of sinners? When those who are opposed to God, worshiping other so-called gods, turn from their idolatry, turn from their self-reliance, and in repentance cling to Jesus Christ, they're restored to the one true God. seems to me that as I read the Scriptures that this is what is most glorifying to God, is when sinners are brought to Him by saving faith. There are plenty of things we can do as, a, as believers, of course, to, to glorify God. We glorify God uh, when we worship Him, as I mentioned, when we obey Him, when we enjoy the good things from Him with gratitude in our hearts. Um, but it's fair to say that God is most glorified, if I can quote Jonathan Edwards here, by the redemption, his plan of redemption, by the salvation of sinners. Uh, John Piper is well known for saying, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. So God is most glorified when sinners repent of their sins and their self-reliance, and they actually realize God to be who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be. They realize that He is holy, and He is merciful, and loving, and kind, and all-powerful. He is the Creator. He is the Awesome One. He is the Famous One that Isaiah talks about. And yet, He makes it possible for us to know Him, to, to be reconciled to Him, to call out to Him as Abba, Father. Yes, the God of the universe. In salvation, God is seen as He truly is. His name is hallowed. His name is set apart as holy, which is what Jesus actually instructs us to pray all the time. Our Father in heaven, 
cause to be hallowed your name. That is to say, cause to be set apart, made central in my life, in my affections, in the life of my church, in the life of my country. Your name, your attributes, your character. In salvation, God is finally recognized as he has revealed himself to be and thereby gets much glory. And I wonder if it's our lack of passion for God's glory that leads to our reluctance to share the gospel. If we're not really as passionate about glorifying God with our lives and our witness, we're not so passionate about that that it doesn't compel us to tell others about the salvation. A question I often ask young adults and even my own children as they consider career and, and the rest of their lives, as I, I'll ask them, how will you in your career seek to bring glory to God? How will you seek to advance God's kingdom? Do you even think about those things? Do we think about those things? It was Paul's zeal for God's glory that fueled his evangelism. Now look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So the Jews in the synagogue were uh, monotheistic. They believed in one God. They were even God-fearing people. Uh, but they didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, and the folks in the marketplace were mostly pagans, those who worshipped, again, all kinds of false gods. So what we're talking about is the religious and the irreligious. And what does Paul do? He goes to where they are. The marketplace, uh, the famed Agora was the, the meeting of the minds. It was where people would come and exchange ideas. It was the real hub of the society at that time, the real center of public life. And that's where Paul camped out, where all these people just happened to be. Paul didn't sit at home simply planning and strategizing or criticizing other people's ways of reaching Christ. What he did was he was involved and he went where they were. And so here's the second thing I want you to see from this passage as it relates to at least to Paul's method. The essence of biblical evangelism is going where unbelievers happen to be. I think I've shared this story. I couldn't remember if I shared this story before, but when I was looking at various seminaries and had narrowed it down to four or five, and I was just coming out of the, the television sports broadcasting industry. In fact, I was still working as a, a sports reporter at the time, and I was trying to figure out where God was going to call us to go by way of seminary. Janine and I had determined that God was indeed calling me to this. And so uh, narrowed it down to a few, visited a couple. I visited uh, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, which is where I would end up going for my MDiv. And I was supposed to spend a half a day with a professor. Uh, but the professor was sick or something, uh, probably golfing. Uh, but the professor was not, not available. And so they set me up with a student representative. And so spent you know, the morning with this student representative. And one of the things he was just trying to figure out, and I think wisely, was, you know, where have you been involved in service before? And because as we've seen a couple of weeks ago, you know, God calls people who are already active in serving the church. And so he asked me the question over lunch, where have you been involved in serving the church? And I gave him a couple of areas. And, and uh, he said, well, what, what are you doing to, you know, to, to, to share the gospel? And I said, well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I just invited one of my neighbors to go to church with me. And I thought, oh, he's going to be impressed with this. This is, this is a recent thing. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, why would you invite your unbelieving neighbor to church? And I was so blown away by that. 
You know, I thought, this guy, man, he, these seminary students, right, they think they know everything. What kind of question is that? But only later would I realize the insight into that question. See, we think, especially in this particular area of the country, often we equate evangelism with inviting people to church. But that's not, that's not the essence of biblical evangelism at all. It's loving people where they are, showing people that we value them as image bearers of God, and praying that God will give us an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. Not our church. Now, it's fine. Don't get me wrong. If you invited somebody to church, you haven't sinned by doing that. It's not a wrong, it's not a bad thing to do necessarily, but this is not what the Scriptures express, not what they teach as it relates to biblical evangelism. It's about going where unbelievers happen to be. And for some of you, because of the job you work, that's very easy to do. You work with a lot of unbelievers, and so you're there every day with unbelievers. For some of us, we have to think harder and be more strategic. How are we going to be around unbelievers so that we can hopefully and prayerfully introduce them to Jesus? So this is what Paul did. His, his motivation was his zeal for the glory of God. His method, so to speak, was going where unbelievers happened to be. But what did he say when he was around those unbelievers? Look at verses 18 through 21. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know... Therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, so the Epicureans were the followers of Epicurus, who was a, a Greek philosopher in the 4th century B.C. And the Epicureans were all about pleasure. And so the end goal of human life was pleasure, happiness, pleasure, which they believed came by experimenting and by knowing things by gaining knowledge. Now, the, the Stoics were followers of Zeno, and they were known for their ability to sort of take life as it came. And, and maybe you'll say if, you know, someone you're involved with is, is seeming very, uh, sort of showing very little affect or no emotion, you might say, well, why are you being so, such a Stoic today? And what their thing was, they just sort of, they believed in this sort of divine fate and everything. Uh, they just took everything as it came. Um, now, they, they weren't really opposite philosophies, but they were very different. And what does Paul do? He speaks to both of them about Jesus and the resurrection. This was the theme of his song. This was the recurring message, Jesus and the resurrection. This was the sine qua non, we might say, uh, which just means that without which we have nothing. Without the resurrection, he had nothing. And yet in the resurrection, as Paul preached it, he revealed that Jesus did what no other prophet, leader, redeemer, savior, or so-called God had ever done. He conquered death and hell. And so the resurrection is the, not only the single greatest event in history, but it is the single event that se separates Christianity from every other religion. Now, of course, other religions, in fact, every other religion has a different philosophy and a different ideology, and they all have different ways 
that we are to work our ways to the God, right? The, to the gods, whatever they may be, whether it's the, the sevenfold path or the five pillars or whatever it is, they all have a way that we would sort of work our way to God. So yes, Christianity is different in terms of its ideology, but that's not where we start. We start in our evangelism. We start in our conversations when we get to know people and when God gives us the opportunity with this question, what are you going to do about Jesus and the resurrection? How are you going to make sense of that? How are you going to reconcile that? It's fair to say that evangelism rises or falls based upon the reality of the resurrection. Not only does the resurrection of Jesus challenge every other religion, every so-called gods, which is one reason that Paul goes there every time in his, uh, in his arguments, in his mission, um, but the resurrection also demands a response, both a, in, an intellectual and a personal response. So let me read the rest of this passage, verses 22 and following. Uh, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one, man, from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead." So what Paul found himself in was this culture that was very fond of sort of religion and very fond of philosophy and endless debate. And it was a religion, really, it was a culture really uh, where there were endless so-called gods and, and the formula for pleasing those gods was, you know, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You sacrifice to the gods, you give to the gods, you hurt yourself for the gods and maybe the gods would respond favorably to you. Paul knew that much already, and he also knew the differences between the gospel and religion. But notice in verse 23, it says, For as I pass along, along I observed. The word observed there suggests careful consideration, intense study. Paul very, he paid very close attention to the culture that he was in. So yes, of course, we must be faithful to the Scriptures. But we also must recognize the challenges of the culture that we're in. If we're going to be effective uh, in our witness. Missiologists call this contextualization, right? It's also called CQ, cultural intelligence. Understanding the culture that we live in. Understanding what people think, how they feel, what they believe. 
not imposing our, our cultural preferences on people of other cultures, but speaking in ways and with symbols and references that make sense, which poses a variety of questions depending on where we do this. For example, how do you explain that Jesus is the living bread in a place like New Guinea where they've never seen baked bread? They don't know what bread is. We have to think, how do we reach people of other cultures? How do we explain mutual submission in a culture that's dominated by patriarchalism, like many cultures in the Middle East? It takes a great deal of cultural intelligence. I had to learn cultural intelligence from CQ as I moved, we moved here to North Alabama from Southern California. Very different cultures. Right? I was... Uh, I was saying to just a couple of guys the other day that I'm still getting used to clergy discounts because in Southern California, when they found out I was a, a, a pastor, there was an additional surcharge. There's no discount for pastors there. You pay extra. I'm still getting used to the different things about this culture. And one of the things we know about this culture is that people are very churched. People, they say, they, they, there's a lot of cultural Christianity, nominal Christianity. People say, oh, I've been a member of this church since I was five years old, and yet they've not actually been to that church in years or even decades. Every culture has aspects that make it more challenging in different ways to lovingly and winsomely present the gospel. But here's what I want to really take from this, and there's a lot, of course, we, there's, there's so much rich material in Acts 17. Um, but as I said, Janine, I had dinner with a, a new couple to our church last night. I said, if we, if we took this sort of verse by verse and phrase by phrase, um, you know, this would be like a five or six year study. And so we're looking at the, the smaller stories in light of the, the bigger story. And here's what I want you to notice, that Paul frames his presentation in a very linear way. And here's what I mean by that. He talks about a God who created everything, because that's where he begins, and then he, and he talks about a God, how that God has acted in Paul's own past. And then he moves on to the current age, which is filled with changes, where, where God presently calls all men to repent. And then finally he moves on to the future, where God will judge the living and the dead. And so what Paul is doing is, he's, he, what he really was doing, he's telling the story of redemption. He's tell, telling the story of the Bible of which the resurrection is the central feature. So what Paul is doing here is he's telling the biblical story, and he's showing how Jesus' resurrection, the central event in all of history, fits within the overall story of the Bible, and how that central event actually frames and gives meaning to each of our individual stories. So here, here's the final point this morning as it relates to what I've called Paul's genius. Here's what Paul is saying our personal stories, as beautiful as they may be, only have ultimate meaning when viewed in light of the big story of the Bible, the drama of redemption. So here's why this is so important for us. In many ways, the culture from first century Greco-Roman world, Athens, Greece, in many ways it's very different than the 21st century North American culture. But in some ways, things have not changed at all. In an age, and I'm going to talk, when I say in an age, I'm talking about then and now, when personal stories trump propositional statements, when people are constantly talking about sharing my truth as if 
Truth is a subjective matter rather than an objective reality. In in that age, Paul brilliantly makes it clear that the biblical story, God's story of redemption, beginning with creation and culminating in Christ's return, is the reality that gives our lives meaning and purpose. So, you know, one of the great honors of being a pastor and one of the things I, I enjoy so much is that people let me in on their stories. I get to hear these incredible stories and stories of transformation and stories of reconciliation and just these amazing things that God has done. Probably won't surprise you to hear me say that I've, I've heard things that seem almost impossible to believe, only to find that indeed they are true. And sometimes I get surprised by learning something I never knew about someone that I've known for ages. I was having dinner with a friend not too long ago, a guy that I respect a ton and spent hours and hours as, as sort of a prayer partner and He shared with me, kind of out of the blue, how God had brought him to faith when he was suicidal and actually had the pills in his mouth ready to swallow. And God miraculously got a hold of him. Just an incredible story. Fascinating stories. And of course, everybody wants to have a meaningful story. We want our lives to amount to something. We want our lives to mean something. Had a a fellow pastor, been in ministry way longer than I have, 35 plus years, said to me recently in a moment of exhaustion, I just don't know what significance my life has had. We want our life to have meaning. I've been around a lot of people as they were dying, and it's fascinating to me how concerned folks are about their funeral. Have you noticed this? Some people are very, very concerned about how many people are going to be at their funeral. And I just want to say to them, you're not going to be there. Like, Why does it matter to you? But people really care about this. People really care about that. Why? Because we want to know that our lives counted for something. We want to know that our stories matter. But how can we make sure? How can we we guarantee that our lives will actually be significant? Well, there's only one way, and it actually has nothing to do with what you're able to accomplish. And that's the only way to make sure their lives will count for something is by living the way you were designed to live and for the purpose that God designed you for. We talked earlier about a passion for God's glory, where the Scriptures tell us that every single person was made for God's glory. So you were actually created, you were designed, fashioned by an infinitely wise God to bring Him glory. You were made for God's glory. But the Bible is also clear that because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are born separated from God, enemies of God, and actually glory thieves. We want the glory for ourselves. And because we are created to glorify God, made by Him and for Him, we owe God our very lives and our obedience. But since we haven't obeyed God, beginning uh, very early on, We have incurred a debt against us. So with every sinful choice we make, every act of rebellion, every time we seek our own way, we actually pile upon ourselves a moral debt against God. Now, it's not something we see. It's not something stashed away in some drawer somewhere, but it's a a real thing, a moral debt against God. We owe Him our obedience, but we continually disobey Him. In thought, motive, word, and action, which just means we are piling on ourselves this debt to God, a debt that is, by all accounts, 
totally and completely insurmountable. But God sent His Son to live a perfect life in our place and to die on the cross the very death we deserved. So that by trusting in Him, God credits to us Jesus' righteousness. And because He is both God and man, Jesus that is, Jesus' death was the only thing that could satisfy the debt that we owe against a holy God. Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for all sins, all of our sins. How do we know that? Because of the resurrection. The resurrection was God's stamp of approval on Jesus' payment for our sins. The Apostle Paul says it differently in a different letter. He was raised to life for our justification so that we could be declared not guilty of all our offenses. Which means that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, Jesus' record is the one God sees when He looks at you. If you're in Christ, when God looks at you, He doesn't see your idolatry. He sees Jesus' perfect worship on your account. When God looks at you, He doesn't see your selfishness. He he sees Jesus' life-giving sacrifice for you. When God looks at you, He doesn't see your sinful anger. He sees Jesus' self-control and meekness. The resurrection is the proof that God sees you that way. And among an audience that was so skeptical and even angry at the thought that all people could be forgiven, Paul keeps bringing up the resurrection as a way to reiterate and demonstrate the scope and completeness of God's forgiveness. So what was Paul's motivation to persevere among all this persecution? It was his passion for the glory of God. And what was his method? He went where unbelievers happened to be. And what was his genius? He continued to show how this big story of redemption, this beautiful story of God's merciful salvation, is the only story that can make sense of and give meaning to our individual stories. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we live in an age where the demand for atonement is higher than ever, but the possibility of forgiveness has gone out the window. What the world needs, what we need, is a message of forgiveness. And this is why Paul continues to preach this same message. The only thing he knows, he says in another letter, Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Because he knows, of course, that those who receive that forgiveness, those who receive that pardon by God in Christ, live with purpose, live lives of ultimate meaning. They live lives of joy and obedience to the one who redeemed them. And those are the same ones who are eager to declare to others God's goodness and the forgiveness they have received. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to grasp this morning the glory of your salvation and give us a zeal for your glory. Give us a passion to see you glorified as the only one who's worthy of worship, the only one who's worthy of our praise, the only one who's worthy of our obedience. Help us to have a passion for your glory and to be so grateful and consumed by your grace and the salvation we have received, that we are eager to go out and share the good news of the gospel 
Lord, we know that you have created us not just for your glory, but also you have created us for a cause, so to speak. And that is to advance your kingdom, to glorify your name by sharing the good news of your gospel. Give us the grace to do it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.